Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Tyler Matheson on day 131 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, new worries for our already beleaguered country, record job cuts and fears China is spying on American pharmaceutical makers. New reports surface. Chinese hackers are zeroing in on U.S. drug makers. Tonight, the FBI weighs in, along with one former top cyber defense expert. Plus, a historic and sad day for the American economy. Record job cuts. 20.5 million jobs lost in April. Tonight, advice from a psychologist to help soothe the stress. And stocks are much higher yet again. Exclusive data on how businesses that have reopened are faring. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins now. Here's Tyler Matheson. Good evening, everyone, and once again, welcome. We start tonight with a new threat to America's pharmaceutical companies racing to develop a vaccine, and it comes from China. Eamon Javers is live with us tonight. Eamon? Yeah, good evening, Tyler. You know, that data surrounding coronavirus vaccine and therapeutic research has suddenly become some of the most important data on planet Earth. The FBI, federal law enforcement agencies, tell us that that data, like any other valuable data, is out there as a target for thieves, particularly cyber thieves from nation states. There was a report just today of Iranian hackers uh, trying to steal data from an American pharmaceutical company. There's also now concern about the Chinese. The FBI weighing in tonight with a statement to CNBC explaining that they're working directly with some of those pharmaceutical companies. The FBI's statement is the FBI continues to work with our partners to share threat information and is actively engaged with pharmaceutical companies, universities, and researchers to help them protect their systems from compromise. Now, Tyler, the Department of Justice and the FBI say their message to pharmaceutical companies is if you see anything unusual in your computer systems, don't assume it's the typical hacking that you've dealt with in years past. This is now a new level of intensity of interest in that data. And so you may be facing a new level of threat. And I should mention, Tyler, that on Monday, I'm going to be speaking with John Demers at 1.30 in the afternoon on CNBC. He's the assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice uh, for national security. He's got a warning that he wants to give those pharmaceutical companies directly. We'll have that on Monday, Tyler. Back over to you. All right, Eamon Javers, thank you very much. And meantime, let's bring in another voice, the former principal deputy director of national intelligence, Sue Gordon. She is an expert in cyber defense. Ms. Gordon, welcome. Good to have you with us. Do you assume that these incursions at universities, at research labs, at pharmaceutical companies are mostly emanating from state actors? Uh, thanks for having me, Tyler. Uh, I think I think the pandemic has produced a, kind of a playground for two kinds of cyber actors. One are the criminals who are kind of opportunistic predators, and they're doing spam and fraud. But the second is kind of relentless pursuers, and those are state actors. And if you think about what the pharmaceutical companies present, they present a target that has economic benefit, political benefit, 
And what's really, I think, for the companies themselves, important to understand is state actors have a resource base and a persistence that is going to make them come at their prey um, kind of relentlessly and with a broad spectrum set of approaches. So this is cyber hygiene, but with a much more uh, purposeful uh, broad spectrum defense. And one would think that these state actors would also have clearly some level of national security interest in doing what they're doing. Because if they're able to crack a code or get information and be able to uh, advance a vaccine in their own country first, that could have not only vast economic data uh, value, but important national security value too, couldn't it? Oh, uh, perfectly said. Um, economic, this is a race to the therapeutics and the vaccines that are going to be incredibly valuable in addition to incredibly important. But remember, state actors have populations that are under stress too. And so the political imperative to be able to find a solution by any means is incredibly important. And I think the third thing that's uh, worth mentioning is when a state actor pursues access via cyber, they are also gaining strategic information. So it's not just the therapies and the vaccines and the research, but is the information about the humans, the directions, the policies that can be a foundation for other intelligence approaches later on. Amen. The Amen Javers. You were, Sue, you were one of America's top intelligence officials. You spent decades at the CIA. Mm -hmm. You spent decades at the highest ranks of American intelligence. I want to know what you think about the idea of flipping the coin here. If another country were to develop the coronavirus vaccine or therapeutics before a United States entity did that, would U.S. intelligence feel obliged to go out there and try to steal it? Would the NSA be trying to hack Chinese computers if they had the vaccine data over there? What's your answer to that? So I think one of the important things to remember is what distinguishes nation states is not access to the technologies or the interest and imperatives, but are you a rule of a nation of laws and do you obey the rule of law? So I would suspect that in this same situation, did we, if we needed to have access, you would expect us to see, take an approach of partnership, um, of diplomatic advance, of scientific advance, um, there is some pretty bright lines uh, that we draw when it comes to economic intelligence and uh, interrupting um, civilian pursuits. So I think you would see a different set of approaches if the situation were reversed. So if the U.S. isn't going to go out and steal this data themselves, what can U.S. intelligence agencies do to stop Chinese, Iranian, other bad actors around the world from stealing it from American companies? What's the counterintelligence package look like? Yeah, so I think it's a, I mentioned broad spectrum. So you need a pretty clear U.S. government policy with clear policy statements that these sort of behaviors won't be tolerated. What intelligence is going to do is to understand where they're emanating from and to be able to uh, identify those for further action. And I think one of the other things we're going to see is we are going to have to see new approaches to defense and new directions in terms of how we protect information emanating out of this uh, event. 
You know, Sue, there's been a lot of speculation and some controversy over the idea uh, that this virus either leaked out of inadvertently a Wuhan infectious disease uh, bio uh, laboratory or may have been even created there. Do you think that Western intelligence will ever know? Uh, it, it could. Uh, I, think, I think we have a pretty um, good foundation of information coming from the scientific community that identifies how they think uh, the virus um, transmitted and that it is not a man-made virus. Uh, I think intelligence has some opportunities and advantages, but I will tell you, you typically don't use intelligence to go find the answer you want. Intelligence is an inductive process where you take what you see and you try and infer uh, a conclusion. So the notion that you're going to turn intelligence loose to find out whether it emanated from there, it, it could happen, but it isn't really the way it goes about its business. That's a very now, interesting Sue, you were point, out of Sue. The I know Eamon wants to get one more in. Go ahead, Eamon. Yeah, I was going to say, Sue, you're, you were out of the intelligence business in the United States at the time this virus Thanks started to spread last Tyler. winter. And, and uh, uh, you were out of it when the, uh, the virus started to spread in December and January. Uh, but give us a sense of what U.S. intelligence would have known about the severity of this. There's been a lot of questions raised about whether the WHO did enough to warn the United States government, whether the U.S. intelligence community warned the president enough with enough intensity that this was coming. What would U.S. intelligence have been able to see back in January, February, when this thing was building steam? And what would they have been able to tell the president of the United States? Um. You noted that I wasn't there, so I'm going to give you some general terms of the, the kinds of things intelligence will do. Um, we, we have three um, uh, approaches we can use. We, we can identify humans who can tell us what's going on. Sometimes we have technical intelligence that allows us to see trends. Um, and then sometimes we use a combination of the two. Uh, what was particularly difficult about this is... Um, uh, did you have the sensors in place? Did you have the assets in place uh, to imagine it? I, we certainly had information. We have tremendous expertise. Um, and you're seeing uh, reports coming that we did know that pandemics were a problem. Our uh, global collection allowed us to see that there were issues happening. I don't know the specificity that we were able to present. Uh, but it seems clear to me that there was intelligence that suggested not only that pandemics were a threat, but also that there were things going on in Wuhan worthy of note. Sue, thank you very much for your time tonight. Sue Gordon, former high-ranking U.S. intelligence official. Eamon Javers, thank you as well. And we look forward to your interview uh, with uh, one of the uh, assistant attorney generals uh, on Monday. Appreciate it. Have a good evening. And here are some more headlines on the virus for you tonight. Tickets for Monday's reopening of Disney's Shanghai theme park sold out in just minutes. Apple says it will reopen some stores next week in Idaho, South Carolina, Alabama, and Alaska. The number of customers in the store at any one time will be limited, and they will re be required to wear masks and undergo temperature checks before they enter. Plus, Honda will start reopening operations in the U.S. and Canada on Monday, and Rhode Island will be the first state in the Northeast to lift its stay-at-home order, and that one begins tomorrow. 
Meantime, Rhode Island will join the more than 40 states that are at least partially reopened right now. And one thing to keep an eye on is the infection rate of the states that are reopening. As you can see here, Georgia, which was one of the first to open, is seeing a more than 50% increase in reported cases since it reopened two weeks ago. And with that in mind, let's bring in uh, Dr. Cameron Wolf, an infectious disease specialist at Duke University's medical school. Uh, that uh, hospital there has treated more than 250 COVID-19 patients. Uh, North Carolina beginning a phased reopening today. Doctor, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, I note that new cases in North Carolina on Thursday were 639, the most ever, and yet the state is reopening. I didn't think it was supposed to work that way. Well, I think if it's, thank you for the for having me on for a start. I think if it's going to reopen, the way we've approached this is that it's got to be um, particularly cautiously. You know, we're, we're a hospital that fortunately, compared to some of the states up north, have, have not been hit as, uh, as badly as, for example, New York or Michigan or, or colleagues in Emory, as you just discussed in Georgia. But it's been busy for us. And so I think we're very conscious of the way that our state is trying to open up and trying to be as as cautious about that as possible to allow us to uh, to handle that. But at the same time, we're in a we're in a place where we recognise there's you know we don't just care for the health of our of our uh, community. We also care for the economic uh, well-being of the people who work here and are in our town and district. So we're going to try and work with our state to make that as effective as possible. But, I, but back to the to the point, I, I thought cases were supposed to start coming down. Uh, and be coming down for a period of days, along with hospitalizations, fatalities, um, and intubations before states went on the course to reopen. And this seems to fly in the face of that. Now, it could be simply that the testing is getting more prevalent and therefore more cases are showing up. Yeah, we're certainly doing a better job here in terms of uh, sort of liberalising the amount of tests that we can that we can do. I will say that on the inpatient side of the hospital, we're actually seeing a, a diminishing number of admissions here, at least. You know, typical of most states, that's been a little bit uh, regionalised, depending on where in the state you would be. But certainly for us here in the Triangle, it's not been as busy in the last one to two weeks as it had been sort of mid to late uh, April. So I do think things have. I wouldn't say they've eased off. They may have plateaued a little bit uh, in answer to your question. But still, we need to be cautious. Yeah, maybe, sure. the curve has, maybe the curve has flattened a little bit. Uh, I see in my notes that you were involved in one of the very first tests of the antiviral remdesivir in uh, the treatment regimen for COVID-19. Uh, and I wonder how encouraging you feel about that drug's possible or, or really current use uh, in treating patients? Yeah, I mean, we've been very encouraged by it, to be honest. I mean, it was it was pleasing to not only see the effort that a lot of people here did to try and get that study up and running, but to then get a positive result to say that it is clearly better than standard of care was, was extremely pleasing. You know, I think there's going to unfortunately be a continued number of patients who um, end up on the severe end of this of, of the disease related to COVID. And, and so to have an option that's now available to them um, is a big deal. You know, we saw people, we saw people improve on that trial and that's been, you know, statistically shown as, as Fauci announced last week. 
it's not the it's not the panacea drug. It's not by any means um, you know effective for everyone, but it sure helps. And I think if we can uh, you know use that as a stepping stone to now continue to sort of move those studies on a little bit further and try and prove if we can you know even make it better, then I think we'll be in a good place. But it, it's a good start. I, I want to come back to the question of of how quickly uh, the states are reopening and and get from your medical perspective. Uh, and and that of colleagues with whom you've de- no doubt uh, discussed this question, do you think that states are moving at the right pace, too fast, too slow to reopen, given what you're seeing in the hospital and given what you know about this deadly virus? Too fast, too slow, about right? Well, I think it's probably a state-by-state answer to that. Um, I'd, you know, I'd be nervous looking at Georgia's figures there of an increase of 44%. You know, I think it's it's not just a reopening question. It's a question of how you do that and how you look at the data that you get in the period of time after that to then adjust again. And I think if you had locked yourself into a reopening pattern, irrespective of what happened in terms of your case volume as you started to do that, then that would be too soon. And yet I think if you can phase that in, um, in a way that's analytic, in a way that's methodical, stepwise, and ultimately data-driven, then I do think you can slowly reopen. I, it's also about other mitigation strategies. So it's not just sort of, we think about reopening as a, as a broad term that the door, shops are just going to suddenly open their doors. But if, but if you can do that in a way that still encourages social distancing, that actually liberalizes and encourages mask wearing, that we're suddenly much more conscious of things like hand washing than we perhaps would have been a few months ago, then I do think you can be more more cautious about the way you reopen and do it safely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got to be data-driven. You've got to look at your numbers and you've got to look at your hospitals and you've got to look at whether they're seeing a second surge and be prepared to slow down your reopening if you see that your numbers are re-increasing. All right. Data is going to be so key in all of this. Dr. Cameron Wolf, thank you very much. Thank you for your service, your work, uh, and get some rest if you can. Thank you so much. Dr. Cameron Wolf of Duke University. And here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Straight ahead, our first indication of how business is faring in the states that have reopened. Exclusive data, only on CNBC next tonight. Plus, after more than 20 million jobs were lost in this country last month, we have a psychologist with us tonight to help us deal with wave after wave of stress. Find out what he's seeing in his patients and how he can help everyone else. Before the break, images from around the United States on day 131 of the coronavirus crisis. list of CEOs on CNBC today talking about the path forward, starting with Moderna's CEO and the breakneck speed that his company is moving in order to find a vaccine. I've seen 
early July, we might be uh, starting a phase three in early summer. So that is a timeline that is beyond our wildest expectation. It has been because of an incredible collaboration with the FDA, with NIID. We have ordered millions of masks. We're ordering cleaning supplies, talking to, to many, many players out there to as consistently as we can to get masks and cleaning supplies uh, in our cars. I think ultimately what you're going to see is a combination between robotics and human interaction. So you probably, where you have people spaced out three feet and you want to get them spaced out six feet, probably the spacing in between, in between you're going to see, I think, a trend towards robotics overall, not to replace the human interaction, but to actually supplement it and work together. I think it's hard to know for sure. Different countries operate differently, but we certainly have seen some very small green shoots in countries like Germany, like Korea is a good example. We'll clearly, for a period of time, be following social distancing. We'll put in a range of procedures to reduce the contact, have contactless entry with our digital ticketing, to tie that in, to have the ability to buy merchandise, to buy concessions on a contactless basis. And yeah, we do certainly expect that through the course of this year. Because of the benefits of unemployment today, that a lot of these workers that don't have a work from home option, they're better off financially and from a health perspective to stay out of the labor force and stay in unemployment. Well, a number of states have started the process of slowly trying to reopen. We've been talking about that a little bit uh, this evening. And tonight we were getting the first look at businesses to businesses. Who's spending what and where? Those numbers to see how the states are doing and whether there are green shoots in those states that have started to reopen. Corterra has a view into $1.5 trillion in annual B2B spending across the United States. And the founder and CEO of that company is Jim Swift, and he joins us live tonight. Jim, welcome. Uh, you have a very interesting perch from which to look at uh, the reopening of the economy. Let's set the backdrop here, though, and that is what did B2B spending tell you about the economy in April? Well, it was a, re a really rough month for, uh, for businesses, as we all know. We basically shut down the economy. And if you look at the year-over-year -year numbers, the spending by businesses in April was down 7% versus April of last year. And it was down 8% from March to April this year. And it was really across the board. 42 of the 50 states were down. 75% of the industries had a reduction in spending. And, uh, and many industries were hit pretty hard. And business-to-business -business spending is important to look at because why? Because it is predictive of what consumers will ultimately do? It absolutely is. And uh, we've been able to, uh, in March, we saw our data was tightly correlated to the retail sales report, uh, which showed that uh, the sales by different types of retailers was down in most categories and up in a few. And when we look at the spending by those businesses uh, with other businesses, they matched pretty closely. So if, when a business doesn't have customers coming in, they spend a lot less with their suppliers. And we see that ripple through our systems. Let's get to what people really want to know about tonight. And that is, what are your earliest numbers telling you about the, the states in which the restrictions are being lifted gradually? What's happening with business to business spending there? And is it encouraging? So what we saw through April is that uh, I mentioned most industries were down. There were a few that were up. Uh, food and beverage stores were up. Online retail was up as we all uh, shopped online. 
And we saw some interesting things with uh, increased spending, uh, such as information technology uh, spend uh, was up more than 200% over last year. And some of the things that we're starting to see, though, in the reopening is that in April, service industry supplies were up 22% over last year. So a lot of that is restaurants uh, preparing to reopen. And then there are little blips that we see in, uh, in a few states, such as Georgia, where restaurants spent 20% more in April of, than they did in April of 2019. And New Jersey was up 35%. So we're seeing these, these early signs that businesses are getting ready for, for the, the opening. I get the idea that Georgia would be getting ready for reopening. They already have. But an uptick in business-to-business restaurant-related spending in New Jersey? That's crazy. That's not coming anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know where that's coming from, but but we saw that spend. We also saw other uh, states you would expect, uh, like Mississippi had a slight uptick. Uh, But something's going on in New Jersey. What have been the hardest hit states, if you know, obviously hospitality, hotels, uh, aircraft airlines would be hard hit by industry. But what do you know state by state where the spending has been telltale? We saw the biggest decline in Michigan. We saw a 34 percent decrease in the spending by businesses in Michigan. And that's uh, that's product of the automotive industry, uh, the heavy manufacturing, uh, obviously restaurants not being open. Uh, we saw other states like Wyoming, Oklahoma, Nevada with all the gaming. Uh, we saw severe declines there. Uh, it was pretty much across the board. Uh, there were only eight states that had uh, an increase, and most of those were food-producing states, where we saw an increase in activity as we all tried to figure out uh, what, what to do with the supply chain on the food. Jim Swift, thank you very much for your insights tonight. We appreciate it. We hope to have you back soon uh, to tell us what you're seeing from your very unusual perch on the economy. Appreciate it. Jim Swift. And there is much more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Ahead tonight, what the jobs report will do to the American psyche. We have an appointment with a psychologist tonight, helping us all deal with an immense amount of stress at home, in our careers, and beyond. Plus, when America's sports cathedrals, the big stadiums from sea to shining sea, will look like when the athletes hit the fields, courts, and rinks once again. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. million, a job loss of 20.5 million. Record layoffs in April. An unemployment crisis has swept the country. Tonight, the first step on the path forward. This CNBC special begins right now. Once again, here's Tyler Matheson. And welcome back, everybody. Happy you could join us tonight. Stocks ended a strong week on a very strong note, despite another massive report of job losses and investors bet that the worst could be behind the United States economy. The Dow rising 455 points when all was said and done. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq both up better than one and a half percent. The Dow was helped by four percent gains in blue chips. Dow, Caterpillar and ExxonMobil. For the week, the Dow up more than two and a half percent. The S&P three and a half percent. And look at the Nasdaq up six percent positive for the year once again. And to show you how far stocks have come back, all three indexes 
are at least a third higher than they were at their lows on March 23rd. But now to those jobs numbers, and they are troubling. It is one of the worst, if not the worst, employment report ever. More than 20 million American jobs lost last month. That is an historic number. The unemployment rate spiking to nearly 15%. It was 3.5% in February, and that 15% is the highest since the Great Depression. This shows the stunning reversal. The economy was adding more than $200,000 a month in January and February before those job numbers crashed. Well, the coronavirus pandemic is, of course, creating a public health crisis, but it is also spurring a closely related mental health crisis. Dr. Simon Rago is the chief of psychology at the Montefiore Health System in New York. Dr. Rago, welcome. Good to have you with us. I'm sure I want to get to two things here. I'm sure that there are immense amount of stresses uh, owing to the COVID situation and the and the illness. But what's coming down the pipeline, it would seem to me, would be a lot of stress related to economic stress and that you're going to start to see a wave of patients and a wave of emotional behavior that's economically related. Am I right about that? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. And uh, yes, I, I'd say you're exactly right with that. As this starts, you usually think of it like a like a stone dropping in a pond where at first we're dealing with the crisis at hand and that was clearly the, the virus and how it's being spread and the medical consequences related to that. And then as, as that wave is passing through us, what's left in its wake are usually all of the consequences from having dealt with that in the short term. So... These are not only the, the health-related consequences that people in recovery are starting to deal with, but also, as you said, the economic consequences, the consequences of having been socially isolated, and all of the other consequences that result in the aftermath of something like this. I'm guessing that with respect to COVID and the anxiety that it has spurned in communities across the country, and, and, and maybe most especially right where you live and work and in New Jersey where I live and work, uh, that the anxiety is very high, but that people may be hesitant to seek treatment because they're A, afraid of going out, uh, they're B, afraid of going and sitting in a waiting room or going to uh, a hospital for that, and that maybe the anxiety is being suppressed uh, and that you may see a blossoming of it down the road. Is that happening? Is that what you're seeing or what? Yeah, it actually lines up pretty much with what we're seeing, at least in our hospitals here, where I think the other side of it is I think people are doing their best to, to maintain social distancing and trying to to follow guidelines and staying safe and staying home. So, So the actual... The, the physical clinic numbers don't look like they've changed thus far that much. But if you look at, at polling numbers or if you look at utilization of things like, like national hotline services or state hotline services or even sort of online applications of, of teletherapy, those are all certainly seeing surges in numbers. So I think, I think you're right. I think people right now um, are staying in more and utilizing the services available to them remotely. And then potentially as things loosen up, we'll start to see more of the, the foot traffic coming back into the clinics and the numbers that you might predict. 
You just answered the question that was on my mind, and that was, have you begun using, and in a big way, telemedicine? I can well imagine that that therapy and mental health uh, uh, therapy would be one of the areas where telemedicine could be extraordinarily effective. You're you're exactly right. And in fact, in, in a lot of ways, Fortunately, this had been looked at now for, for a number of years as, as technology improved and advances were made and, and um, applications were broadened. We've actually been studying the, the sort of transition of traditional teletherapy sessions into mm-hmm. online and application formats. So we have data that, say, that says it, it can be effective and we have resources available now that we were able to implement and actually transition quite readily into a telehealth platform. What does, what does history tell us, doctor, about what happens to people's emotional health, to their anxiety levels, uh, to uh, social acting out in a, a stressed economy where job losses are high and incomes are wiped out? What are the lessons of history there? What happens? What are we, what are we up against mentally? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the news isn't so good there because the if you use modeling from from previous events of of this magnitude, you see uh, an exacerbation of pre-existing conditions and people of, of things like anxiety and stress and depression, and anger, and all of the the difficult emotions people are already contending with, and then they get amplified when you have economic stresses or, or medical health stresses or social isolation and, and restrictions and freedom. So it compounds things and people become at higher risk for things like greater depressive episodes or increases in, in um, problematic coping strategies like substance abuse and misuse. And even you see some correlational data that suggests people are at greater risk for increased feelings and thoughts about suicide and life not being worth living as as the right. economic impact is felt. Quick final question, quick final answer. Are you bracing for a rise in stress, or maybe you're already seeing it, a rise in serious stress reactions among the practitioners in your health system, the doctors and nurses who have seen death and illness on a scale they probably have never seen before? The answer to all that is yes, and we were ahead of it. We've launched initiatives that that are reaching out to the providers before they even come to us so that we can let them know you have an ally here. We're doing it on a one-to-one basis as best we can with all of our providers on the front lines so that we, they know when it settles down medically and the pressure's off and they start to feel the impact, they've got a direct person to contact so that we can help identify problems before they start to get too intense. Dr. Rago, thank you for your uh, conversation tonight, for your work. Take care of your fellow uh, physicians and, and nurses and, and uh, everybody around you. Thank you again. And thank meantime, you. CNBC is hosting Healthy Returns. It's a virtual town hall next week uh, with some of the biggest names in medicine. For more information about our May 12th event, you can go to cnbc.com slash healthy returns. We'll have some folks on that event who are at, at the front of the COVID-19 fight. And here's what's coming up on this special report, Markets in Turmoil. Next tonight, what American sports, like the fall football season, will look like when the fans, or some of them, come back. Plus, we knew it was a great experiment, the Dean's Folly, as I call it. The new face of graduation in the United States. Before the break, 
images from around the world on the 131st day of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back, everybody. As more states slowly reopen, the drum back, drum beat to bring back sports grows ever louder. Some believe that sports could play a very big role in healing the country. Lee Eagle is a clinical associate professor for NYU's Tisch Institute for Global Sport. And he recently wrote an op-ed on CNBC.com on the subject with famous medical ethicist Art Kaplan. Uh, professor, welcome. Good to have you with us. You know, my son loves the University of Michigan. Our neighbor loves and went to Ohio State. They disagree on that, but they love watching the game. Sports is the one thing that really is and creates a sense of community, right? Sports certainly creates a sense of community in ways that uh, almost nothing else does. And uh, here we are in, uh, in a historic crisis, and we've got no sports as a result of it. Certainly not the, uh, the worst of things, but uh, it's a punch that uh, we feel more than most people realize. We miss it because it's how we pass our time, whether it's with the national pastime or with the NFL or uh, uh, women's softball, uh, whatever you're the fan of. Uh, we miss it, and it, it does provide a kind of solace or a calming effect. It gives you something to do. And without the ball games and without the events to go to, if your child or relative is a participant, uh, you have time on your hands. Yeah, uh, sports is, we call it a pastime, but uh, it's actually something quite active. And uh, in this period that we're going through now, it's considered a non-essential service, but it's actually something that's quite vital uh, because it brings people together, because of how, part of how people participate in it and what it means to, uh, to economy, what it means to society. Uh, sports is important, and being without it, again, is not the most critical thing uh, at a point in time like this, but it matters a whole lot more than most people yeah. realize. And it, and it does, as you say, have a very potent economic effect uh, in the neighborhoods around which stadiums exist, whether it's a college campus or a, a professional sports venue. So I'm wondering if sports does come back and if it comes back either with no fans in the stands or with one fan in every third seat, that is going to have a, a multiplier effect beyond the effects that have already taken place, which is taking sports down to zero in those neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, sports, again, really matters in these communities, and uh, we're in a new normal. So uh, it's not if sports comes back, but when sports comes back and what it'll look like. Uh, one of the things we're going to realize that, of course, we hope that everybody's health, and by the way, public health has to come first. Um, but when sports, along with other things, come back, we're going to realize how much we missed it, not only from a community aspect, but from an economic aspect. This is 
It's a big driver. It keeps a lot of shop owners, a lot of retail and uh, restaurants, hotels, and other people in business and working. Yeah, it's a big employer as well. Professor, thank you very much. Let's hope the games begin again soon. Professor Lee Eagle They'll go on NYU. Well, one, uh, thank you. Uh, one big state university's answer to nobody showing up for graduation. We'll show you their novel way to deal with that next. Well, as you probably know, graduation ceremonies across the country have been either postponed or canceled. But Arizona State University's Thunderbird School of Global Management says the show must go on and they're doing it via robot. Tonight, we hear from the school's dean and one of his soon-to-be graduates in their own words. We were really looking forward to come together and celebrate in person, walk on the stage, um, so when we found out that it was canceled, it was a little disappointing. I got an email, congratulations, you won this award and somebody will get in touch with you for, because you'll be receiving the award via a robot. So that's all that was told. I'm like, really? Uh, okay, this sounds exciting. We knew it was a great experiment, uh, the Dean's Folly, as I call it, but it turned out, I think, to be fantastic. We had a couple of practice sessions. All the students who are graduating uh, via robot get presented by me with their diplomas. Congratulations, Julie. We're so proud of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kagrama. It has a program involved, very easy to learn. They had taped the floor for us to know what path we are going to walk. Um, and if you played your car games uh, when you were a child on the computer, you know, the front back arrow jump, it's the same way. All you're doing is the front side back arrows to maneuver the robot. It was very fun, fascinating. And you felt like you're in the room. My parents wouldn't have been able to fly from India because of the lockdown and everything. And now they can, they get to see this sitting at their home in Mumbai. So I'm just super happy. COVID-19 has only accelerated the transformation in the world. We're even more digital. We're even more remote. Technology is playing even more of a role, obviously. They're going to be able to tell their children and grandchildren that they not only survived COVID-19, but they graduated during it uh, with robot avatars. That looks like the most important lesson in entrepreneurship and enterprise that that school could have taught those graduates at all. We wish you all the very best on your graduation day. It happens on Monday. That was fun. And meantime, on day 131 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines. The economy lost more than 20 million jobs in the last month. That is by far the worst on record. Unemployment rate skyrocketing to just under 15 percent. It was three and a half percent in February. California's Legislative Analysts Office projects the state will have a budget deficit through at least 2024. This because of lost revenue and costs associated with the virus totaling $126 billion. And stocks rallied and a strong week. The Dow up 455 points. For all of us here at CNBC, have a great weekend. I'm Tyler Matheson, Undercover Boss Now.